Welcome to Innovation Mixtape, a custom series produced for Omer's Pensions by Now or Never Ventures. In our second series of conversations, we will continue introducing you to some of the most interesting people around the world. We want to help you explore new propositions in the pension space from other countries, dive deeper into the complexities of executing innovation, and meet interesting startups in age tech and other adjacent spaces. We hope you enjoy and leave inspired. Today, we are talking to Will Haskins, who drives content at Money 2020 Asia. As a former editor and entrepreneur, Will's experience working with Asian finance and technology leaders positions him to connect the dots between Asian fintech firms and the rest of the world. Today, we're going to explore trends in the pension space from Asia and unique opportunities in the market. I think what would be particularly helpful, I mean, you know, so from my side, um, I mean, I have a lot of really interesting conversations with people doing cool stuff, and I'd love to be able to kind of, you know, share some of those stories with you to be able to connect you with some of those people, if that would be useful. Um, but I think, as Ian mentioned, you know, just being able to understand a little bit more of the direction that you want to go, or if there's some particular, you know, kind of challenges or problems that you're trying to solve for, I think it'll be helpful in terms of envisioning how we can direct you to, you know, additional resources or kind of share a bit more. So we're really thinking, how do you make this relevant? How do you make it affordable? How do you make it meaningful? Um, as retirement change, aging changes, the nature of work changes, uh, all of that stuff that's happening, really the, the three big problems, um, kind of the, the member product, the member experience at its core, the investment platform that we have, and then building an ecosystem to support those two is essentially what Julie and I spend all day thinking about. Right. Well, you've got a fair bit to work on. I think, you know, I, I definitely think there's a lot that uh, can be done around those. Um, you know, you, one of the things you mentioned at the end um, uh, is the kind of onboarding process uh, when you're trying to work with groups. One of the groups that's done quite a lot with that out here is actually uh, DBS out of Singapore. Um, so they definitely recognized that, you know, if the same type of thing, you know, you've got these massive contracts that you do with companies like Salesforce that require huge amounts of DD ahead of time. And, you know, kind of, you know all these kind of usual loop, um, not loopholes, but uh, kind of hoops that you need to jump through in order to kind of qualify for that and be certified for it. Um, but they realized that they couldn't do it. Um, I mean, I used to be an independent contractor and worked with um, alert, uh, worked with UBS and, you know, they required me to provide two years of automated financials. And I'm like, my business, I, I started the business. I'm like, my business has been around for six months. I, I literally do not have that. Um, so one of the things that they've really done is they spent a lot of time, like as always is the case with these types of innovation products, not talking externally, but internally about how they can work to streamline that process. So they got it down to um, basically they can onboard somebody in about two weeks if they're going to do um, a predefined kind of proof of concept. Uh, and so that allows them to really kind of streamline how well they're able to work with people. And what the other thing they do is, you know, they put these kind of fixed um, terms around it so that it's, look, you're going to, we have an issue with, you know, um, uh, our purchasing department and we need some help with how we're going to be, you know, improving our functionality with our purchasing department. You are coming in and it's not this massive thing, which, you know, a lot of incumbents get accused of, of, you know, we're going to bring somebody in, we're going to kind of get all of your best ideas, and then we'll give you a little bit of money and get kicked out the door. It's something where, look, you come in, you get paid for the work that you do, and, you know, it's a predefined kind of term. 
So we want you to solve this type of problem for us. We have usually the average duration for their projects are something like uh, eight to 12 weeks. It's a quick sprint, build something for us, show, you, show us what you can do. And if we want to re-up after that, we will. But generally, they keep everything intentionally tight, which I think helps them internally to get that across the line. But it's also something that's made it really, uh, I think, a lot more attractive for startups to be able to work with them. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And I don't know if you have insight into this, but how, how would the companies or how would, uh, you said DBS? Like, yes. What, how? What's their internal process to come up with the problem that they're actually trying to solve? And is that the right problem? So what they do actually is, um, so, you know, instead of kind of beginning with, um, you know, we're going to have an accelerator an innovation challenge and anybody that's got anything that could be potentially related to, you know, and I mean, if you're a, a full service bank, it could be anything. Um, what they do is they actually go around internally and uh, the guy that heads it up here in Hong Kong, Basically, he just runs around to all the departments and they do a lot of work promoting it, saying, look, if you have something you think you can improve that shouldn't be this hard, come and talk to this guy. And so he goes around and that's the process that they do so that when he comes out to, you know, the kind of startup community, he has very specific shopping lists. And so he's got, you know, you know, this department needs X, this department needs, and they can be across anything. So it's not just obviously the financial functions for them. Um, it's also, you know, their HR team. Uh, it could be their marketing team. I mean, they have a, a broad remit to just engage with anybody that's got a new idea for whichever team is struggling. And so that's how they that's how they pitch it internally is to say, look, you know, we're a team that's here to solve your problems, to make your work more effective. So that's how they get rather specific issues that they're getting people to come in and solve. And so usually I think what has also been beneficial for them is that as a result of that, they've got a much higher likelihood of a good fit. You know, if they're going up with a very specific problem set, they know, you know, okay, this company can either solve that or they can't. So I think that's kind of what they've been doing. That's that's really interesting. And how would they be measuring the proof of concept to figure out if it's worth continuing or not? Well, from the conversations I had with them, um, uh, if I recall correctly, basically they put that out there when they come up with the – it's part of the, the – um, almost like the internal RFP that they do with that department, you know, where they're sitting down and saying, okay, you know, this is where you are. Where do you want to get to? You know, what would, you know, kind of a first incremental step look like for you? Um, and so what would that, and so the teams are kind of defining that for their um, innovation kind of uh, team. So they provide them with what that would look like. Um, and then that's how they shop it out to the different uh, startups that they're working with. Um, so I, I think it's something where this is always the challenge. I mean, a lot of the companies that we talk to, uh, the hard part is not necessarily, I mean, you know, you get some CVCs where they come in and they're obviously just getting you know, capital formation, but really the tricky bit and the, the, the valuable bit is not just that you get good investments. Most financial services firms have very good investment professionals already. Uh, what they need is people that can provide measurable return on innovation. And that's the, the tricky bit. Right. In your world, like who's doing it really well? Like that, that they've been able to systematize this process and you know that there's going to be success at the end of the day. Um, are, we, are we looking at kind of in your world of, you know, pension defined benefit or are you looking at kind of more broadly across financial services? Yeah, we're looking broadly. And even if it's kind of tangential or adjacent to financial services, part, part of, 
why we're going and meeting people outside of the pension and benefit space, because I think it's one of the last undisrupted industries that hasn't really had to change. And, and for context, um, it, you know, if, if you work for the city of Toronto, you have to be an OMERS member. So it's, it's a monopoly in many senses. So there hasn't been that drive for change. That's why we're looking out in financial services and even the big Canadian banks kind of a, it's a four part oligopoly. So, uh, anything that you've seen who is kind of an adjacent industry, we're open to here. Right. Well, I think there's been a couple of companies that have been doing a decent job of it. Um, but I think it depends on the starting point. Um, so a good example here, kind of two different paths for it. Um, there's a bank in the Philippines called Security Bank. They're like the number seven, number six bank. They're not massive. They're not, you know, kind of dominating the market. And they realized, look, we don't have the the capital to kind of year on year throw a lot of money into kind of big innovation projects and, you know, just decide that we're going to, you know, apply machine learning to everything and we're going to, you know, become, you know, Azure's favorite customer in the Philippines. So they said, we can't really afford that. Let's look at where we can simply get the best return for our um, for our kind of investment buck internally. And so their approach is much more measured. Um, but they began with, you know, so in that specific bank, they began by kind of uh, trying to get a more holistic view of all the different kind of customer touch points that they have. Um, in the Philippines, it's particularly bad because you have uh, four national IDs, and so you can open an account with any one of them, which makes it really, really hard to kind of line up your customer accounts. But so they started working on some of these kind of internal problems and detangling that. Um, but I think the other ones, uh, you look at companies like, for example, DBS, um, I think Standard Chartered up here do a very good job of this as well, uh, where they said, you know, look, we we do have some capital to put behind this. We want to lean on this. And so um, if you look at, for example, Standard Chartered, I think they've done a really good job with it. Um, uh, and they've had a multi-pronged approach with it. Um, so for them, you know, they're kind of bread and butter, you know, they've got the retail bank, but the bread and butter for them is really kind of the um, the corporate banking, the trade finance stuff. And that's really what's been most uh, kind of their, their biggest revenue driver. And so what they did is they um, they kind of split their efforts into a couple of different things. They began a um, they began uh, the kind of ventures team, which, you know, would look from the outside pretty familiar, I think, to most people. Um, and that was essentially a way to kind of look at it and say, okay, we're going to begin to you know, invest in companies that are going to help us to do things that we can't do on our own. Um, and they had a really good team. Uh, they pulled in a bunch of kind of uh, VC experienced people, um, fewer of the, I think, out and out technical people, um, but a lot more of the kind of um, founder investment community. Uh, they brought them together. And what they've been doing is they've been able to kind of um, uh, their bigger project was to create um, uh, essentially the option for the bank to migrate to a digital bank. And that's the kind of the bigger goal for them. And so it was, okay, how do we map out and then assemble the various pieces that we're going to need to do that? And so the, the venture team has really been focused on that specific goal. And I think it's been really successful for them because they have a really clear plan and uh, path for that. Um, they've kind of publicly done this in terms of uh, the retail side of it, um, but they're working on a lot more of it in terms of the uh, corporate uh, uh, clients. The other thing that they do, I think that's been interesting is they were very particular about making sure they wanted to be able to serve uh, these fintech companies. 
um, a way to get access to them? I think this is one of the questions that a lot of people are asking is how do I get in touch with the people that are most exciting? Well, they just decided, well, look, let's make money off of them. We're a bank after all. And so they actually have a fintech advisory group that they formed as well. It's only, you know, I think, four people. But um, still, what they've done is they've got four people. And that's essentially what they do is they're effectively, um, you know, the revenue generation side of it is that they are RMs for these fintech companies that are coming up and providing with the different, you know, services and solutions that they need. But it's been very effective because they're also essentially analysts. And, you know, they will tell you in private conversations that what they're doing is while they make money over here, they're really feeding that back into the main body of the bank because it gives them access to really interesting conversations with people that are building stuff that's new. Um, and it's something where, you know, look, we've got stuff that's going to help you. We're going to give you the financial support that you need as a young company to be able to continue. So I think that's been an interesting structure that's worked well. Yeah, um, yeah. I'll pause there. I've been talking a bit. Really that that's really interesting because I'll and I'm sorry I'll let I'll let Ian jump in but like we've been looking with this massively underserved piece of the economy which is kind of freelance or small business or effectively startups and and there's no hope or any form of pension that they could get and I'm just thinking like what that might look like to get access to this pipeline in a roundabout way um, really interesting sorry Ian I interrupted no no well, cool um. I was just thinking in terms of from the startup side, sometimes in like specifically in North America, maybe a little bit in Europe, there's like a bit of fatigue from corp like from the, from startups when corporates want to come and go play with them. Um, and like examples of good partnerships are often like few and far between, like going and play, like for a startup, some corporate comes along and says, hey, like I'm the savior to all your problems. Like I've got a load of money. Come work with me. I've got a book of existing clients. Um, and then the thing kind of fizzles out because of whether it's culture, whether it's ways of working, whatever it might be. Does that work differently in Asia? Because I always feel like you see more things emerge very quickly that come from more of a startup lens that probably have a bigger splash in the market than potentially do um, on this side of the world. I do think a lot of those dynamics are similar. Um, the the horror stories exist out here as well, um, you know, we engaged with this very large customer as a startup and we thought, oh, this is great. The name recognition we'll get from that is going to be fantastic. Oh, but they told us, you know, we can't publicize that we're working with them until we get out of the proof of concept. Oh, but, you know, we're going to have to kind of give them our product as like a, a, a beta version. So, you know, we're not going to get paid our for commercials, you know, kind of as we would expect for it. And, you know, the, the stories go on and on. You guys have heard them as well, I'm sure. Um, there's still a lot of that that happens. Um, I think part of the reason that there are startups that rise rapidly from this part of the world is that um, the regulatory environment in certain places out here has been uh, either one of two things um, in a couple of different markets out here. It's kind of, and I apologize, I'm not as familiar with the Canadian regulatory kind of posture, but in the U.S. it's a lot more do stuff and then we'll tell you if we don't like it. Um, and then there's some countries that follow that, um, you know, uh, so that kind of has created an avenue where there's a lot more openness to uh, new companies coming in to potentially, you know, kind of usually more heavily regulated and therefore um, slower to move sectors. Um, the other thing is we also have some uh, jurisdictions where the regulator has been extremely forward thinking. 
Um, and that would be Singapore, that would be Korea. Um, and I would argue now, even though they don't get as much of an attention, uh, but uh, Japan, um, they've done quite a lot. And actually, I mean, the list could go on. I mean, um, not necessarily in this side, but, um, you know, we're seeing it in a couple of other different places where a lot of the regulators starting to kind of realize, look, we have an opportunity not to just kind of sit back and play referee, but to drive outcomes that we want and we value here. Um, so a great example of this would be in, in Singapore, where um, the Monetary Authority of Singapore, um, and they've got a kind of a unified uh, financial regulator that covers everything. They basically came out and said, OK, you know, we want to be able to uh, build this sector, partly because it's going to be an employment driver. It makes um, Singapore look good, gives us kind of prestige. And we think it's a growth sector for the future, but also because we recognize that we have three banks uh, that have that type of oligopoly and they're very profitable and they're very well capitalized and they made it through the financial crisis well. So we don't want to punish them, but they're not moving much and we want to poke them. And so what they did is they began to kind of open up. Um, they began to open up competitive processes in a, um, in a prescriptive way. So at first that was, you know, kind of publishing uh, an API library and saying, you know, here are APIs, we think, we've worked with the industry, and you all need to be able to service any of these APIs. If anybody wants to connect to them, you have to offer this functionality. You can build your own as well, but this is the bare minimum. We want you to do this. It's not open banking, but it's a nudge in that direction. Mm. Um, similarly, they also are doing uh, digital banking licenses, and so they've um, gone for three, what is it? Uh, they've got um, five uh, split between kind of, um, a wholesale bank essentially focused on kind of uh, corporate and SME business and then, you know, a full service uh, retail bank, just the, your, your kind of average high street bank, but digital, fully digital banks. Um, and so they've kind of pushed in that sense to say, you know, we want this to take place. Uh, we want it to introduce more competition, which I think has created the environment that, you know, for startups in that community um, or looking at some of those markets. I mean, Singapore being just one example. You know, there's clearly a path that you can follow where if you are helping the government to achieve these aims, then you're going to be supported. Um, I was interviewing a, a guy who works at a he's trying to build the Sharia Challenger Bank in Indonesia. Um, it's a bit niche, but it's quite fun. Um, <clears throat> and but it's actually something where it works really well for him because his company has become kind of the one of the unofficial poster children for you know, what, what the government is trying to push in terms of their Sharia economy in Indonesia. So I think, you know, particularly out here, you've got the positive demographics um, as well, which doesn't necessarily translate back um, to more developed markets, um, populations where the vast majority of them are under 40, where, you know, probably about 50% of them don't have any type of formal banking account. So there's a lot of green field to work with, which creates opportunities as well. But um, I, I think the regulatory posture has certainly been, uh, a big part of the reason that some of those startups succeed here. Yeah, I, I having I met one of the Singapore guys from the the monetary authority like a few years back when they were in the valley, basically just looking at everything shiny they, they could possibly find. So yes. what, the way they looked at things and the way they asked questions was very different to a Canadian regulator. I can tell you that. <laughs> Certainly interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. In terms of like the when you talk about the sort of the greenfield. Um, like how like you've got young populations, a lot of them don't necessarily have a defined banking relationship. I, I guess like everyone points at China and goes, everyone's like money is basically a, like spent and acquired using like super apps like WeChat Pay and Alipay. 
is I know like Hong Kong had like Octopus as a as a platform like well before most other places were um, moving towards like card based or digital payments. Um, but has that meant that adoption of new things comes a bit easier because you have a younger population that sees like a cool brand out there that does something a bit different and goes, oh, I'll try that. Does that help the emergence of new, more digital, more innovative propositions? I think it certainly does. Um, I mean, you know, you've got to hit on the right use case. Um, you know, WeChat Pay didn't take off until they discovered, um, they, they settled on doing red packets. Those kind of, you know, uh, Chinese New Year, Lunar New Year uh, gifts. And that's when the service really began to take off. Um, so I, I think it's something where, you know, you've got to kind of find really what your customers want. But there is a lot more openness to it. Um, just today, there was a headline that uh, the parent of TikTok, uh, ByteDance, the, the kind of Chinese entity, um, not the one that um, Trump is trying to get a, a, a slice of the sale of, um, they, uh, sorry, I shouldn't talk about governmental things as you are <laughs> governmental employees. However, not of that government, but I digress. Um, they're applying to, to um, they're basically applying for some brokerage licenses here in Hong Kong. Um, because I think one of the things that really works for them is that uh, they have seen, uh, I mean, and I think this has been partly, they've nurtured it by tweaking the algorithms in the background, I would suspect. But, um, you know, during the lockdown, there's been a lot of uh, trending videos on TikTok about investment. And so they said, well, if you're looking for investment things, maybe we can help them. Uh, and let's look at how we can do that. So I think it's definitely been something where there's a lot more openness to it. Um, certainly, I think one of the things that's been very influential in that is that there's a very different approach to data and privacy here. Um, uh, people view their data as a commodity that they can repeatedly trade for things that are shiny. Um, and so they're very happy to do that out here. Now, if you're in China, you don't really have a choice anyway, but um, you know, in other parts of Asia, that's still something that bears out. People are very happy to trade that. India is probably the one where they've kind of stood out most. Um, I think for the attitude that they've taken of trying to, the government at least, of trying to protect users and their data, I don't think the users necessarily cared, but I think the government does, which might not be a bad thing. Um, coming back to... China specifically, though, I think one of the things that's been most impressive for me, um, the, the two biggest things that come out of it are, one, that they are about to launch, well, they're already piloting their digital currency, which might not be terrifically relevant for what you guys are doing, but they're streets ahead of everybody else on that. And that part is really interesting to watch. Um, the other thing is, as you said, um, they built these financial super apps. And they're they're genuinely functional, um, and you can go on to. I mean, I have Alipay on my phone, and I use it pretty much every day, um, and it's incredibly beneficial. Um, it's very very easy to use um, in China. It's even better, um, and now you're starting to see other companies begin to follow that pattern. So uh, it was technology companies like Tencent and Alibaba that first rolled this out, but China Merchants Bank, um, they have done an excellent job. Now, originally, the play was you would build, so within uh, Tencent's WeChat, you can build a mini program that runs within the app. And that's how, you know, most people don't want to kind of, you don't want to compete for customer attention with a dominant social app. 
it's extremely expensive to do so. So you just build something into it and that works. And so they built this ecosystem of mini apps that have all these different financial services players among you know a, a wide variety of others that are part of that, that experience. Um, but then what they also did is China Merchants Bank said, actually, what if we flip this around? We are a very large bank with relationships with a, a wide array of other businesses. Let's see how many of them we can pull into a platform that looks and feels very similar to that so that you can go into a China Merchants Bank app and you have access to, you know, we've got a, um, you know, a, a, a partnership where you can buy your train tickets. You can get, you know, hire a car if you want to. You can, um, you know, kind of buy plane tickets. You can, you know, order groceries. You can, you know, reserve a movie ticket. You can do all these different things within that, leveraging the, the kind of corporate banking relationships that they have through the group. Uh, and that's been something where they've actually developed something that's really, really successful for that. Uh, and I think that's been, um, I mean, coming back to one of the points that you made at the beginning, Jordan, you know, it's it's about how do you make that kind of relevant on a more day-to-day -day basis? I think the real challenge for a lot of financial services brands is you have to decide as an organization if you want to be the pipes that operate in the background that are effectively financial utilities that are very stable, um, profitable, but not massively so, um, and certainly not in the public eye. I mean, most people couldn't name their electricity utility provider, um, but they're very glad that the light always turns on, and it does. Or you go the other route of trying to be top of mind and being a brand that your customers remember. And I think the thing that we're starting to see here is there are a couple of them that have begun with that attention-getting device, um, and a great example would be somebody like uh, Gojek in Indonesia or Grab in Singapore. Um, Ride-hailing is um, extremely common, and that has built them the kind of usual daily use characteristics, which means that customers open their app all the time, but then on the back of it, they've built out financial services. Um, so you can do something like that, or we're starting to see certain financial firms that say, much like China Merchants Bank, okay, we're going to just tap into the things that you have to do anyway, that you want to be doing. We know you don't really want to do banking or investing. That's not really something you want to do on a daily basis. But there's all these other things that we have relationships with, or we're going to build relationships with, which will encourage you to open our app and interact with us. So I think we're starting to see a bit of a divide there in terms of how they choose to approach it. Mm -hmm. The grab one's really interesting because I, I was having this debate actually with someone yesterday that grab is more customer centric than Uber. So Uber like went to go do its financial services thing, kind of didn't work, didn't really get the traction. COVID came along and then they like delayed a lot of it. Whereas like grab seems to grab came after Uber, but they seem to have a better handle on, and maybe it's just having a bigger. I assume a greater population they go after or greater target market, but I, I, they feel like they have a better understanding and appreciation of how do you win the hearts and minds of a, an average person. I think if you're looking at Grab and Uber, it's a slightly different, another layer that I would put on top of that, because I think as you describe it, it could be true. Um, but I would also argue that um, within the SoftBank family, there are favorite children. and um, Uber, having already gone out into the markets and no longer being a, a private entity, um, has a bit more pressure that they have to deal with. Um, but they also don't have access to dad's wallet anymore the way that Grab does. Um, and I think that's really kind of changed things a lot for them. 
Um, because, you know, one of our favorite things to do when I travel around in Southeast Asia is you'd order a grab from the airport. And then I would ask the driver if I could communicate well enough in English. Um, I would ask the driver, so how much do you get from grab every month if you meet the quota? And they'll be like, oh, I get this much every month. And honestly, it was like, you know, anywhere from between, you know, uh, effectively like a uh, hundred US dollars to sometimes 150 because grab subsidizes both ends of the market. Uh, which is incredibly dependent on venture capital, which allows them to be very customer centric because they don't have to really charge people. And so they can just delight everyone um, except their investors. Um, the problem then is, you know, how you really kind of transition that into a sustainable model. Um, so I think, I think that's, uh, that's the, the real challenge of it. Um, I, <coughs> one question I guess I'm curious about for you guys, you know, you mentioned, um, earlier that if you're uh, a, a municipal employee in Ontario, obviously you're, you're pretty much guaranteed to be an OMRS member. As part of your charter, do you have remit to offer that to other groups as well? I mean, can you kind of expand from that? Or is that something you're looking at? Or So it's a, it's a really good question. And uh, you, you kind of mentioned that we're government employees. We're actually, we used to be. So OMRS was a municipal entity. And then in the 90s, there was an actual OMERS Act that were a separate, uh, independently right. managed right. company. But, but there's there's very, very prescriptive definitions on who can and can't be an OMERS member. Mm. Um, and that's kind of prescribed by legislation. So you'd either have to change that um, through the plan text or kind of what we are looking at is like, how do you actually make it so compelling that you start to have consumer and member pressure people asking for this? It's something we're looking at. And, and that's kind of the broader question of, what is OMERS actually here to do? Like, is it just a, a monthly check or is it actually like a safe, secure, sustainable retirement? And you can do that in a number of different ways, only one of which might be giving you money, but providing for some other things that you, you could reasonably expect to encounter in retirement. So it's a it's a good question. And, you know, without getting into the mechanics of, of plan legislation, I think there's a lot of other stuff that we can do that doesn't touch like the core plan, but is adding additional value on, on the outside, like, you know, financial planning or wills and estates or, or discounts or travel insurance, all of this stuff that you would have in an, in an ecosystem, kind of like what you're talking about China Merchant Bank, like people often that, that check that they get in their pension funds everything else that they're doing. So the fact that we're giving it to people just in oftentimes an actual physical paper check, and then it's out of our ecosystem out the door is a bit of a, I mean, it's a massive opportunity. It's $4 billion a year that we pay out that we never, you know, see again. So it's like, yeah. should you have a, a cash card or kind of a, like an Omer's bank on the other end, all those. And it's not just us thinking about it. Like oftentimes members ask us like, Oh, like when do yeah. I get my Omer's card? Um, because it would just, it's kind of like the Starbucks app or like yeah. a, a smaller version of WeChat. Pay. Yeah. And I do think that's a very interesting angle to look at for you guys, because, you know, I mean, essentially that is the move, uh, I guess you could call it downstream, you know, we're, we're providing this benefit for you. We've invested this prudently, which allows us to be able to pay out this 4 billion every year to our membership. And, you know, that part, that mechanism seems to be working quite well. You know, I mean, you, you've got that part down. Um, so then what do you do in terms of following that downstream? Well, I, I think that can definitely work. I mean, so one of the things that I saw, there's an Australian company that, um, and I apologize, their name is escaping me right now. But um, what they did is they started on um, budgeting 
So they, they, and specifically they said, okay, there's uh, an indebtedness problem in Australia. So their whole app was initially designed as show us your debt. We'll help you figure out a plan to get out of that. Now that made them very attractive. Um, and then along the way, as they're doing that, if they want to do consolidation of that debt, they can. And there's a lending piece that's available. Now, the, the app is free and you can use it without, you know, taking a loan from that company at all. But it's something that gets them a lot of traction. And importantly, it gets them a huge amount of data and, you know, kind of inf interesting information about the profile of the customer. Um, similarly, I think, you know, the benefit for, I mean, the, the real thing for Grab um, and the real attractiveness there is that, you know, a business like that, because they have so many different um, facets of your daily life plugged in, um, because you can pay for so many different things through the app, they understand and they have uh, one of the richest customer profiles in terms of what's going on, which I think then allows you to really customize and build um, build products to meet individual needs. And I think that's something that um, very much could be a realistic goal for a group like Omer's, if you're looking at, you know, look, what does, especially is, I mean, if you look at the demographics, the, the population of retired age, you know, pension drawing people is, is growing in North America. And so, especially the top half of North America. And so if you look at that and you think, okay, you know, how can we help these people meet their financial goals while they're enjoying their retirement years? Yeah. I think that could definitely be a part of it. Um, I think that would actually be a, a compelling proposition. One of the things we've seen just in our own experience and with all the banks is the cult of dashboards where people start to go down this route and then you have a fancy calculator that you can do all these projections, but then it stops there. You can't do anything or you might not even trust yourself to handle these numbers. And you're like, I'm a little bit freaked out because now there's percentages and you're not sure if you're doing it right. So who have you seen or kind of what advice would you have to bridge that gap between a dashboard with lots of numbers translating it to something useful, actionable, um, you know, where you can, where you can go deeper into that ecosystem into somebody's life. Um, are you talking about in terms of trying to give the individual customer confidence to make decisions based on the dashboard in terms of like potential investment decisions, or are you talking about how you would get uh, more information about the customer in order to know what types of uh, things you might encourage them towards? The latter, the, the second piece. Okay. Um, I think the thing to do with that is you have to have, uh, you, you really have to have a much more granular view of what happens after the $4 billion goes out the door. Um, now, maybe that's one way to do it. I mean, really, actually, no, it's not even that. It's you have to understand what their needs are. So, how do you solve for that? I mean, maybe that's something that comes in by, you know, tracking, you know, where do you spend this? You know, you do a tie up with MasterCard or Visa and they have a virtual card that can spin up anytime they want to use it. If they're using their Omer's app or something like that, and they can, you know, buy things with their phone uh, or something like that. Um, you do a tie up with, I don't know, we do Google pay, but they'll, they'll take all your data. Um, but, you know, something like that. Um, but, I mean, so you could do something like this where you kind of go with an existing provider that will give you the functionality to track daily spending or something like that, or at least to track kind of, you know, financial goals and progress against them, which will give you a proxy for that. Um, so I think you could work on some something like that. Uh, I, I think the other thing is, could you consider a partnership um, 
is there a consumer facing app that would give you that type of information? Um, now, I mean, you know, kind of the, the big players for things like this are usually companies like Google and Facebook because they have that consumer information already. They know that about your customers. Um, uh, and Google, I mean, just announced that they're doing co-branded cards with about eight different banks in the U.S. I mean, and this is kind of the idea with that is that it's not necessarily benefiting Google because they have that information. It's something where they're selling that as a service to these banks because, you know, even though they get called in front of Capitol Hill, um, if you have to decide which brand you trust more, it might be Google over your your kind of your bank. Um, so uh, I think that kind of works for them. But I mean, I think there are some definite opportunities for you guys to look at, you know, because, you, you know, if you're trying to address the entire Canadian population, it's too expensive. Um, but if you're looking at, you know, did you say it was 500,000 members? Yeah. 500,000 members is a doable size. I mean, you've got clear focus, which in this case, I think is beneficial for you guys, because if you can find something that allows you to within Ontario, be able to say, okay, this is, you know, this is something where um, we recognize this is a valuable proposition um, and we can find a partner who can give us access to that type of data um, or we could build something that would, or even just kind of partner with a, you know, a FinTech that says, okay, you know, we want to do, you know, financial planning. We want to do goals. We want to do kind of maybe some gamification with it as well, that you can create something where it's very attractive that anybody that works for um, the municipality looks at it and says, this is no brainer. I mean, I, I don't care about what happens with my investment. I'm using this because it helps me because I need to make sure that I'm getting to the end of the month and I've hit my savings goals. I'm using my, what is it, the ABC, if I want to use that. And I'm also, you know, trying to make sure that I've got, um, once I'm retired, that I'm planning my resources that are defined uh, appropriately. So I think there's definitely opportunity there. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really helpful. And that's what we're hearing and trying to figure out the mechanics of that and really getting people to think about OMERS differently than just, the pension and something that if you're 30, you might not even see any benefit from for another 35 years. Yeah, I get this. Um, I get this wonderful letter once a year from the uh, Social Security Administration in the U.S. that says this is how much you have contributed. And this is the type of contribution that you can expect to receive. And it's miserable because it's completely not at all relevant to the immediate financial needs that I have. And, and I think that's really the thing that you know, would be the, the the acts that you guys have to go to with this is trying to say, okay, you know, for our customers, um, and if you're thinking, again, perhaps just about um, customers that are already into retirement and drawing on those defined benefits, you know, what are their financial needs and how are you really going to be able to, to try and, you know, show them that you are helping them to achieve those specific things? Because I think the the, the reality of it is that those services still win. Um, people that are able to solve the problems that you have financially. And if, you know, I mean, I know you were being, well, I'm, I'm guessing you're being a little bit tongue in cheek about, you know, the Canadian financial services environment, but, you know, if there isn't a lot of, you know, kind of pressure to, to deliver something new, you can lead on that too. And you can provide something that is going to stand out. Um, so I definitely think that's possible. Um, one other thought, something you mentioned earlier, talking about, you know, kind of the, plan legislation, how you might not want to change that. Um, so in a prior role, I worked a lot with the um, 
uh, asset management industry, particularly around, you know, what happens with uh, trading. So secondary markets, you know, stocks, bonds, all that stuff. Um, and so we focused on electronic trading there. Uh, one of the things that I saw with a number of those groups was that they make money off of managing money for other people. And that's very straightforward. You do a good job and then you take a percentage, generally speaking. But what they also realized was that the best groups often had um, pretty advanced capabilities in-house. And one of the things that they also began to explore, some of them, was how can we take those capabilities that we've developed and kind of hive it off into a service. Hmm. So, you know, we would say, so as this would potentially relate to you guys, I mean, if you're saying, okay, you know, well, Omers has figured out this suite of services that is, you know, best in class for how you meet the financial needs and well-being of, you know, somebody who's, you know, on a defined benefit plan. We can't obviously, because of, you know, the legislation, we can't offer that to someone outside of these this group of people, but we can offer the services to someone else that wants to provide that to their customers. And that was um, a revenue stream that uh, a number of these different asset managers found particularly attractive. Um, because once you've got that proposition that is recognized within the market as something that's best in class, well, you know, again, everybody has that buy build conversation. And if there's somebody that offers me a package with a nice, pretty bow on the top and it's cheaper than and less painful than trying to get my organization to build it, I might go with that. It's a actuarial as a service. It's... Yes. No, <laughs> and it is in a sense. That's fascinating. It's a new acronym now. Um, I'm, I'm curious what you're really interested in right now. I mean, you're seeing so much stuff and what are you researching? What's at the, the forefront of your industry? Just like what you're personally curious about. So I think what's really interesting to me right now is in response to, um, well, let me step back a second. I, I think it's a, a bigger trend. We saw the competition for customers' attention across, I mean, particularly if you're looking at kind of the retail side, we saw this massive competition come out in terms of, I mean, banking is a good way to look at it. There's lots of challenger banks that crop up. But, I mean, the same could be said of remittances. It could be said of SME banking. It could be said of a number of different things. But you have these um, this kind of massive uh, venture capital-fed competition for aggregate growth. And there was um, really a reduction in thinking to view how we can find the hockey stick of customer growth. And this was something that began to take on a really unsustainable life of its own. And now what I think is most interesting is, um, so we're planning, uh, we're planning some uh, new content for the beginning of next year. And um, one of the things I was discussing with one of my colleagues yesterday is we are going to have a series within that that is particularly focused on um, the economics of your business. You know, where does this business make money? And in particular, where are there pressures on that revenue and where are the opportunities with that? Because I think this is something that, you know, um, it might not have hit the kind of pension space as much because there is legal mandate around it that protects it. And, you know, I mean, that may make it harder to change in some ways, but also makes it a lot more stable, which isn't a bad thing either. Um, but I think that's one of the things that I think has been most interesting because 
In this environment, we are seeing governments roll out measures to support um, jobs and businesses, and we're seeing that specifically across um, kind of fintech startups as well. Some of the companies that are trying to do new things, um, they're not necessarily, you know, revenue positive. Um, they might not even be kind of, you know, revenue positive at the unit economic level, let alone the corporate level. And so I think one of the things that's really interesting here is um, some of them aren't going to make it. There's going to be some stuff up for sale for fire sale prices. Um, now, sometimes you get investors that come in and back them and say, we're going to keep you going. Um, you know, uh, some of the uh, British challenger banks have raised money recently and you know, kind of some of them have taken a haircut on that. Um, but their investors have backed them. Um, they've kind of chided them a bit. So they had a 40% reduction in their, uh, at least on paper valuation, but they still got the money to keep going. But I think there's going to be some where that doesn't really work um, for a variety of different factors. And I think what's interesting to me is to see, does that create um, within that a transfer of both intelligence and a transfer of momentum? If I were working at an incumbent bank or most kind of incumbent financial institutions, I would be screaming to my board, this is an opportunity to act. We're not under as much pressure as some kind of startup that's two years old. We have a long history. We've gone through, you know, many financial institutions have gone through strict capital adequacy testing. And, you know, after 2008, and that's a good thing. And that means that right now they have the capacity to take bold steps if they wish to. Um, so I think that's what's at a macro level, something that's very interesting to me, uh, to see kind of what happens out of this, who decides that they're going to take bold moves in this, um, and really begin to say, you know what, we want to, you know, we've been threatened by this kind of particular type of competitor and we think we can, we can come level with them very quickly and we're going to make a big jump. Uh, cause I think that opportunity exists right now. In terms of, uh, um, like Jordan mentioned, that owners are, are looking to become more of a global company with bases in Singapore and Sydney. How can an entity that's not necessarily from the region or from Asia be like, how can they have a bigger impact? Or how can they be helpful or useful to the to the ecosystem? Um, given like they come from Ontario, their members are in Ontario, but ultimately there's a desire to become more of a global business with whether that's acquisitions or whether that's owning pieces of infrastructure that pay, come, like pay government pensions, like how can someone like OMAS be more useful and be more impactful in, in new markets? Well, I think that the investment side, um, there is always, I don't know what the appetite would be, um, and I don't know if that would necessarily be within your team to, to speak to it, but in this part of the world, at least, uh, just speaking for this neighborhood, there's always an appetite for capital, for infrastructure, and there's a great amount of need for it out here. And so there's there's a lot of opportunity around things like that. If you know you're looking for kind of projects that produce stable return, there's a lot of opportunity. I think one of the other things to consider, though, is um, you know one of the attractiveness one of the points of attractiveness if you're trying to engage with more people out here particularly if you're trying to engage with startups for example that have solutions that can i mean if they're based on data they travel very well usually so if that's the case um you know marketing the stability of the brand that you have 
marketing and pushing and saying, look, you know, we have a group that, you know, this is what we have. We can give you this kind of planned access. We understand what our benefits will look like, what our benefits, I mean, what our kind of um, projections will look like going forward, basically, because we know how many employees the, you know, Ontario has. And so we've got a really stable base for people to grow with. And it's at scale already, which is, I think, very attractive. Um, And I think if you were to position it as, you know, this is the place where you can come and you can test a lot of these ideas. uh, The the way to open that door would be to have, uh, I think, to, to give opportunities to some of those companies that have interesting solutions. I think that would be the contribution that would be most meaningful. I mean, th- there could be potential tie-ups. Um, you know, if you've got membership that are, I don't know, I mean, if people from Ontario like to take their holidays in Thailand or something like that, I mean, uh, you could work on something like that. Um, the the Sharia Challenger Bank guy, one of the ideas we talked about is they're working on um, kind of the international uh, fee-free um, virtual debit card so that when their members go on the Hodge to Mecca, they don't have to, you know, do FX conversions and things like that. So maybe you've got something like that that kind of requires a tie up out here um, from the customer facing side. But I think you could really begin to source and hunt for solutions across the world. If you have that clear statement of, look, this is what we're looking for. Here is the path that you're going to engage with us on. Um, and it's all very straightforward. I think there's a lot of people that would love to, I mean, every startup is looking for more, more companies that they can engage with. Um, and I think what's also been interesting too, uh, you know, I was talking about the thing that's interesting to me and that I'm quite curious about. We've seen even before the virus and the resulting um, economic fallout, there was a massive pivot taking place where B2C businesses realized they could never compete and they were never going to get enough customers to be really sustainable. So they all switched to becoming B2B solution providers we built this wonderful bit of tech that our customers loved, all 200 of them. But um, we can actually offer this to your, you know, 200,000 customers and you're really going to like it. Uh, so I think there's been a big shift there um, and there will continue to be more of those types of companies and opportunities that come up. Um, I'm conscious of time, Will, but like, thank you so much for um, taking a, a message out of the blue to have a conversation with us today. Um, do you have any more questions for us? Another one we didn't talk about. Um, there's a life insurance digital insurer in Singapore called Sing Life, and they've really been pushing their. Um, it's not a savings account. It's not a fixed uh, term account, but they have an insurance investment account that they've been really um, playing up, and that's kind of been their kind of um, play into the market. Uh, they'll give you 105% of your account balance as an insurance premium. And so that's kind of the, you know, and they give you on the first 10,000, uh, 10,000 sing dollars, it's like 2.5% per annum. So, and this interest rate environment, that's not bad. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Will. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Amazing. This has been Innovation Mixtape. Thanks for listening.